This morning, we turn in our Bibles. We're taking a little break from the book of Romans. And we are this morning in John's Gospel, chapter 17. John chapter 17. And we want to be looking this morning at what is popularly known as Jesus' high priestly prayer, the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus. We'll read just the first five verses of John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John chapters 13 through 17 record for us the final teachings of our Lord Jesus to his disciples as well as his final prayer just before his crucifixion. This was not his final prayer, but it was his final prayer just before the crucifixion. Well, of course, he's going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, but this really is his most concentrated prayer before going to the cross. It is this prayer that is the focus of our study this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and Luke chapter 11, 2 through 4, which record what is popularly termed the Lord's Prayer, was properly speaking a model prayer he gave to his disciples as he taught them how to pray. What we have here in John 17 was an actual prayer of his. Oftentimes in the Gospels we hear of Jesus praying, for instance in Luke chapter 3 verse 21, Chapter 9, verse 18, 11, verse 1, we're told that Jesus prayed. But in many of those instances in, where we're, in which we're told that Jesus prayed, we have no record of what he actually prayed. We are not given the contents of his prayer. Those instances in which the details of his prayer are given are found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25, through 27, his prayer following the lack of repentance in cities where most of his mighty miracles were performed. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 39 and 42, his prayer at Gethsemane, where he prayed that the cup that is the agonizing suffering of the cross might pass from him. In John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, his prayer at the grave of Lazarus, in which he thanked his father, for always hearing him, those prayers are recorded in Scripture. Recorded for us are his prayers while he was on the cross. That is, when he was hanging there on the cross, he inquired of God, for example, Mark chapter 15, verse 34, Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That in which he prayed that his persecutors might be forgiven, when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And then that final prayer of his, when he cried with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke chapter 23, 
and verse 46. But of all the prayers that are recorded in the Gospels, this that's found here in John chapter 17 is by far the most extensive and detailed. In this prayer, we enter, as it were, into his innermost thoughts, getting a feel of those things that lie near and dear to his heart. As we listen to him at prayer, we hear something of the depth of his love and communion with the Father, his love for the Father, his communion with the Father. We hear something of his heartbeat. From this prayer, we learn of the surpassing magnitude of his love and of the love of the Father for those who believe on him. This prayer is often referred to, as I said, the high priestly prayer of Christ. And you know, as our high priest, Jesus, we're told in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 35, is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing at the right hand of God? is there at the right hand of God interceding for us such that no one, Paul says, can effectively bring a charge against us or condemn us. He says, who is to condemn? And then he gives the answer. He says, look, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, suggesting that no one can really condemn us or bring a charge against us. Not that they can't, but they cannot effectively bring a charge, and that charge stands. First John chapter 2, verse 1 teaches that as the righteous one, he advocates with the Father for us when we sin. My little children, John says, these things I'm writing to you, that you do not sin, and if any man should sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. According to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, by virtue of his eternal priesthood, he always lives to make intercession for sin. So those scriptures establish for us the truth that we have in the Lord Jesus, a great high priest who intercedes for us before the throne of God. And surely among the great benefits of this prayer here in John chapter 17 is that it gives us some idea as to the contents, the subject matters of his prayers for us, even as he intercedes for us in heaven at this very moment. And as we examine this prayer this morning, we see that it falls under three headings. Three headings, verses 1 to 5, his prayer for himself. Verses 6 through 19, his prayer for his disciples. And then verses 20 through 26, his prayer for all believers. We're considering this morning, namely, his prayer for himself. His prayer for himself, verses 1 to 5. John prefaces his record of Jesus' prayer by stating that he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And this speaks, this lifting up of his eyes to heaven speaks of far more than a physical gesture. In a most vivid way, it speaks of the posture of his heart. It speaks of that attitude of heart he had even as he communed with God. In the Psalms, we find repeatedly this imagery of lifting up the eyes to heaven as one would pray in Psalm 25 verse 15. We have the psalmist with his eyes toward the Lord in the hope of finding deliverance. In Psalm 123 verse 1, he lifts his eyes to the Lord who is enthroned, implying his trust in the Lord who is sovereign over all. 
In Psalm 123, verse 2, he tells us that he lifts his eyes to the Lord as the eyes of servants look to the hands of their masters, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress until God shows mercy. So if we put those verses together, we get this idea then that when Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven, that that was suggestive, among other things, of his confidence in God. It suggested his expectation of his father to hear him with regard to the request he would make of him. It signified his assured expectation of receiving from his father whatever he would ask of him. Now, the first matter for which he prays is that the father would glorify him. Father, he says in the C part of verse 1, the hour has come, glorify your son. Previously, on various occasions, he would say that his hour had not yet come. You remember when his mother went to him at the wedding, the wine had run out. She went to him saying, they have no wine. And what did he say to her? He says, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. There's a time his brothers wanted him to go up to the feast at Jerusalem. And he says, you go up to the feast. I will not go up because my hour is not yet come. He says, your hour, your time is always present. My time is not yet fully come. But what was this hour to which our Lord Jesus was referring? What did he mean when he said that the time has now come? Well, John's comments in John chapter 7 verse 30 as well as John chapter 8 and verse 20, provide us with some hint as to what this hour was all about. In John chapter 7 and verse 30, John writes how that the Jews were seeking, he says, to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8 verse 20, he records that as Jesus taught in the temple concerning God being his father, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Fast forward a few chapters and Jesus, as he approached a time when he would be arrested and unjustly condemned to death on the cross, we hear him in John chapter 12 and verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. From these references, the clear suggestion is that here in John chapter 17 and verse 1, the hour that had now come, the hour to which he was referring was his suffering, which would culminate in his death on the cross. This was the hour he was to offer up himself as a sacrifice for our sins, so as to make atonement for our sins. And my friends, the fact that he could previously say that my hour, my time has not yet come, and at this point now affirm that his hour has come, tells us how fully attuned he was to God's timetable. It tells us how fully attuned he was to God's timetable, and it also tells us how compliant he was with God's redemptive purpose even though it would cost him untold excruciating suffering by way of abject humiliation and by way of brutal, violent execution. And the thing that's most striking, the thing that's most arresting 
about this prayer is that in the face of the dreadful prospect of the cross, Jesus should request of his father to glorify him. Here it was, he was going to face the cross in a few days, few hours, and he's asking the father, he says, the time has come, glorify your son. What was he asking for? And the question is, how and why was his father to glorify him? First of all, let's consider this, that his prayer for God to glorify him, glorify your son, was not an attempt at asserting and exalting himself. Yes, he was God, but remember, he at this point, and as he is now in his capacity as man, he was praying as man. And his prayer, glorify your son, was not an attempt at asserting and exalting himself. Here's the point. His was not a desire for self-aggrandizement. And why can we say that? Because John chapter 8 verse 50, there in John chapter 8 verse 50, he expressly declared, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. God, he says, gets the glory. In fact, he said in John chapter 8, verse 54, here's what he said in John 8, 54. He says this, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. That's Jesus speaking. Indeed, we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, that though he was in the form of God, he did not consider it something to grasp, something to latch onto, but he made himself of no reputation. And the Bible tells us he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And in that condition of humiliation, as he would be our sin bearer as he walked this earth. He lived in complete dependence on the Father, never asserting his own will against the Father, but was always seeking the Father's glory. And so he was not intent on seeking glory for its own sake. Now, in view of the fact that in order to be our Redeemer, this is what we have to understand, in order to be our Redeemer, he had to enter this world as a human stepping into our poverty. And as such, it was necessary for him to veil the glory, that pre-incarnate glory, that glory he had from all eternity. That was why, as we said in Sunday school this morning, as our Lord Jesus walked this earth and as people looked at him, there was nothing particularly special about his appearance that would give the impression that he was who he was as the divine son of God. He did not walk around with a halo around his head. As the prophet Isaiah declares in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, here's how Isaiah the prophet depicted the Lord Jesus in his humanity. He says this, he grew up before him, that is before God, like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Yes, it has primary application to the cross. With all that he went through, with all the buffetings, the batterings, but in a real sense, even as he walked this earth, he was like any normal human being. 
And yes, from time to time, he would manifest his glory. He would manifest his glory, for example, in his mighty, miraculous work, such that when the disciples saw him work, they would say, what manner of man is this? And even the winds and the waves obey him. Demons recognized his majesty as the divine son of God. During his transfiguration on the mount, he revealed something of that glory. Remember when Peter and the other apostles, they saw him. The Bible tells us how that he was transfigured before them. His face shone, his garments glistened white before their eyes. But by, by and large, all the while he was living among his contemporaries, there was no visible halo surrounding his head, signaling that he was the divine son of God. There was nothing of glory in a physical sense that identified him as the divine son of God. And so the glory he was now requesting, that glory he was now requesting of his father, Father, glorify your son, was, according to his statement in verse 5, the glory he had with the father before the world existed in this first line of our Lord's Prayer, then, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. We hear him implying equality with the Father. The very fact that he could have prayed like that suggests his deity. The fact that he is equal with God. The Jews of his day would never address God as Father, as Jesus did for example, you'll recall in John chapter 10, verses 31 to 33, how that they picked up stones to stone him. And why did they do that? Because he had claimed that God was his father. They understood him to have been committing blasphemy. But here we see the fact that Jesus addressed God as father, called attention to his oneness with God, even as he was submissive to the father. The fact that he was submissive to his father, the fact that he was heavily dependent on his father as he walked this earth did not diminish the fact of his deity. More so the fact that he possessed glory with the father prior to the creation of the world clearly speaks of his shared deity with the father even as he submits to him. And so being the divine son of God, if you look at the prayer, you can see instances or inklings of his deity as the divine son of God is reason why he possesses, look at verse 2, universal authority, universal authority, and can therefore grant eternal life to those the father has given him. That's a mark of divine prerogative. He has authority over all flesh. In fact, John chapter 1 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And he has authority to impart eternal life to as many as the Father gives him. Being the divine son of God is why he can speak of eternal life as consisting in knowing God as well as knowing him, Jesus Christ, verse 3. That as the divine son of God, he is co-equal with God, is why in verse 8, he can speak of having come from the Father. Is why in verse 21, he can address God, you Father are in me, 
and I am in you. Again, note verse 10 in which he asserts equality with God by saying, all mine are yours and yours are mine. My friends, in and of ourselves, you and I cannot make that statement. We cannot say to God, all that you have is mine and all that I have, yes, we can say the last part, all that I have is yours, but we cannot say all yours are mine. Now, listen, yes, even though our saving union with Christ has made us heirs of God and joined heirs with Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. This is all by the sheer unmerited grace of God. So that at the end of the day, we cannot but humbly confess that all that we are, all that we have, in fact, all that we hope to be, derives from God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 36, he says, therefore, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And here's our Lord Jesus asserting that all that God has is his. What is he doing? He is asserting his deity. And so that without qualification, declared to the Father, all mine are yours and yours are mine, clearly signals that as God is none other, in other words, He's one with the Father in every way. He's none other than God. It says to us that all that God is, he is. That all that God possesses, he possesses. Let me say this. That's why this prayer is powerful. Because what we have here, my friends, as we're going to see, is really at the end of the day, Almighty God praying for us. It is the living God himself who is praying to God for us. In fact, down in verse 11, notice he predicates his prayer for the oneness of his disciples and the fact that he and his Father are one. He says here in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now back to our early point regarding the reason our Lord Jesus prayed that the Father might glorify him. As we said, this request was not for mere personal exaltation. It was not to assert himself. It was not to exalt himself. His was not a desire for glory in and of itself. The reason he requested that his Father glorify him is given right there in the text, and it was this, because he wished to reciprocate that glory. In other words, he wanted the Father to glorify him so that he might in turn glorify God. The last clause of verse 1, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. As we analyze his prayer, it becomes clear that all the attention of our Lord Jesus was focused on bringing glory to his Father. All his attention was focused on glorifying his Father. Hear me again in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave to do. You see, his glorifying God was not just a matter of the things he said about God, what he spoke about God. But his glorifying God was also a matter of what he did for God. It was not just his words, what he said for God, but it was his works also by which he glorified God by the things that he did for God. Hence, notice his prayer. In his prayer, his accomplishments, he speaks of his accomplishments, the things that he did for his Father, thereby bringing glory 
to his father, verses 6 and 26, he says this, he manifested, that is made known to his disciples, his father's name, these men that God had given him out of the world. He says, I've manifested your name to them. What was he saying? In effect, he was saying that he had faithfully represented the father to them. One of the ways you and I glorify God is by faithfully representing him before the world. Jesus said, look, he says, Father, I have manifested, I have shown them what you are like. Wasn't this what the Apostle John said was the express mission of our Lord Jesus? John chapter 1 verse 18, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. The Greek word there is the word from which we get our English word exegete. He is the one who has explained him. And during his ministry on earth, our Lord Jesus Christ, by the things he taught and by the works he did, made it clear to his disciples, to his followers, precisely what God was like. He explained God to them. In fact, one of his disciples did not get the message as to who he was. Remember? Philip said, show us the... He said, said, speak to us plainly, Lord. Show us the Father, and it will suffice us. And remember what he said to Philip. He says, Philip, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not known me? The one who has seen me has seen the Father from now on. You know him. Philip was satisfied. He said, Lord, now you're speaking plainly. (laughs) Verses 8 and 14, notice also what he did to glorify God. He gave his disciples the word his father had given him. How do you and I glorify God? We glorify God, first of all, by manifesting his name that is faithfully representing him in the world, but we also glorify God as Jesus did by giving his word to others. To the extent that we are declaring the word of God, we are sharing the gospel, we are glorifying God. We glorify God as we point men to the truth that there is in no other person salvation, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. As we declare that, as we declare the gospel, we are bringing glory to God. He gave his disciples the word his father had given. But notice verse 12, he kept them from perdition. He kept them from perdition. He says, I have kept them in your name, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. And by the way, the fact that only one was lost was not a blight on his efficiency, was not a blight on his power and his ability. But he says the scripture had to be fulfilled. In other words, in the, in the sovereign plan of God, that's how it was ordained. He says, I've kept these men, those you have given me, out of the world, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. May I say this to you, beloved? May I say this to you, brethren? Here's the point. Why do we affirm the security of our salvation? Why do we rest assured in the fact that having come to Christ and Christ has saved us and we have truly placed our faith and trust in Christ to save us? Why? Because all of God's saving work is predicated on what? The glory of God. 
You could say in a real sense, reverently so, that God's glory is at stake if ever our salvation were to be lost. One of the ways Jesus brought glory to God, he says here, is by giving the disciples, giving the men God gave to him out of the word. He says, I have given them your word. I've manifested your name to them. I've kept all of them. None of them is lost except one, the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And verse 19, notice another way he glorified God. He he states how that he sanctified himself, that he set himself apart for the Father's use, for the Father's service. Here we have an example from our Lord Jesus of what it means to bring glory to God. We bring glory to God when we sanctify ourselves, when we separate ourselves, when we devote ourselves to his service, which necessarily means separation from that which is contrary to the will of God. That in this prayer, Jesus was passionately intent on glorifying God is evidenced by the fact, notice this, that he used the pronouns you, yours, and yours in reference to the Father some 63 times. 63 times. As he's praying to his Father, what is the focus of his prayer? You, Father. You're this. You're that. You, your, yours occur 63 times in reference to the Father. Whereas he uses the pronouns I, my, and mine 88 times. They're all used. Watch this. They're all used, not in relation to himself, in terms of personal benefits, in terms of self-exaltation, but they are used with reference to the Father. He speaks of himself in the first person, but is always directed with respect to the Father's interest. Indeed, all his passions, all his focus, were geared toward glorifying the Father. In all that he said, in all that he did, he glorified God. This is what this prayer is all about. This prayer of our Lord Jesus, this high priest, the prayer of our Lord Jesus, even as he prays for himself, he is praying for the glory and honor of God. Throughout his ministry, in all that he said and did, he glorified God was reason why throughout his ministry he could speak along these lines. He could speak like this, John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. As Christians, is it our passion? Is it your passion? Is it your focus? Is it your ambition? Is it like the Apostle Paul, you could say this, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, he says, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ. That's the very spirit our Lord Jesus is displaying here. What is he displaying? Passionate, consuming desire for God's glory. John chapter 6, verse 38, here's what he says. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 9, 4, he said to his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. 
Jesus then was asking God, we could say this, Jesus then was asking God to glorify him, not with a view to worldly self-seeking, but with a view to glorifying the Father and giving his appeal to the fact, giving his appeal to the fact that the hour had come, the means by which he would therefore glorify the Father was the suffering of the cross. Recall his words in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Here's what he says. This command I've received from my Father. It was the express command of God that Jesus, his son, would enter the world as the sacrificial lamb for our sins. God is recorded in the book of Hebrews as saying, look, sacrifices and offerings I do not desire. And then the son therefore says, I come to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And he came for the express purpose of laying down his life in obedience to the Father. God the Father wants to be glorified by Christ by his bearing in his body the sins of the world, taking them away so that in the end the holy justice of God might be satisfied, might be vindicated. That is why scripture says this, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father. Verse 5 of Galatians chapter 1, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. You see that? Paul links the sacrificial work of Christ with the glory of God. So when Jesus is saying here, glorify your son that your son may glorify you, what he's saying, Lord, I am going to go to the cross in obedience to you. I'm going to lay down my life. And in that way, I'm going to glorify you. You in turn, Father, this is how you're going to glorify me. This, in effect, is what happens. I'm looking forward to the resurrection. I'm looking forward to the ascension. And I'm looking forward to the session at your right hand. Similarly, the glory of Christ, and this brings us to what I'm saying, the glory Christ would receive from the Father would necessitate his suffering and dying on the cross. Of course, followed by his resurrection, as we said, his ascension and elevation to the right hand of God. First, he had to suffer and then enter his glory. Luke 24, 26, 1 Peter 1, verse 11. And that is why we are told in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, as we draw to a close this morning, that in consequence of the cross, in consequence of our Lord's obedience, even to the point of death on the cross, here's what Paul says. Here's what the word of God says. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Jesus is asking for. I'm going to glorify you, God, by laying down my life. Lord, glorify then your son. Glorify your son, Father and your son will glorify you. Now, let me show you something in verse number two. Do you see verse two? It follows right after his glorifying the father. 
which of course would entail his suffering and his death. Do you notice how the two are linked together? He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. The point is this, that there is no eternal life, there is no impartation of eternal life apart from the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus. One of the ways that God is glorified is when sin is judged and it had to be judged in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had to pay in full the penalty for sins that you and I deserved. And by virtue of his death, yes, by virtue of his resurrection, he can therefore impart eternal life to as many as believe on him. This is why Acts 5.31 can say this, that in consequence of his resurrection, I'm paraphrasing here, here's what Luke says in Acts 5.31, he has exalted him, God has exalted him, that is in view of his death and resurrection, has exalted him to be prince and savior. There's no salvation apart from the cross. What are the lessons we glean from this? portion this morning. And I would close by saying this, that this prayer of our Lord Jesus gives us some valuable insights into what prayer is all about. What is prayer all about? And firstly, as exemplified by our Lord Jesus, prayer should have as its object the desire for God's will and glory. Prayer should have as its object of desire the will and glory of God. Throughout his prayer, our Lord Jesus is concerned about nothing else than bringing glory to the Father. Such that in response to the redeeming purposes of God, he was attuned to the hour of his suffering when he should die on the cross. As he taught in his model prayer, our prayer should begin with a concern for the glory of God, for the will of God. Our Father who art in heaven, your will be done, your kingdom come. That's precisely what our Lord Jesus is doing, is praying here in his high priestly prayer. He has in view the fulfillment of God's will and he's looking forward to the glory of God, that God might be glorified. Our prayer should begin with a concern for God's glory. And the fulfillment of his will, which means that as we pray, we must have a readiness to embrace God's will, even if, even if that will should take us in the path of suffering. Jesus exemplified that for us. As he prayed, he says, the hour has come. He was attuned to his mission to suffer according to the will of God. To glorify God in prayer means we must of necessity be willing to die to self as our Lord Jesus did and take up daily our cross and follow Jesus. And then finally, from this prayer of Jesus, we see that prayer is more than just making requests of God. Prayer is more than just asking God for things. It is more than asking God for this, that, and the other. Prayer involves, among other things, conversing and communing with God. That's what our Lord Jesus is doing here in this passage. He's talking to God, he's conversing with God, and he's not all into asking, asking, asking. Notice, for example, verse 3, he adores God. Prayer is not just petition. Prayer involves adoring God, telling God about who God is. We are praying and we are citing who God is as being holy, as being righteous. It's not redundant. Jesus did that. For example, verse 3 declares to the Father, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom we have sent. In verse 11, he addresses God as Holy Father. Holy Father, he's adoring God, he's glorifying him. Verse 25, he identifies God as Righteous Father. Oh, Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. He was making petitions in these instances. He was simply telling God about God. What a blessing we derive from this prayer. This prayer gives us an idea of what Jesus is praying about, even as he's seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. It shows us where to put the emphasis, not on self-aggrandizement, not on self-exaltation, not to ask for things as mere ends in themselves, but to ask with a view to glorifying God. 